Okay, good morning, everyone. Welcome back to our study of Mark. We're going to pick up in the ninth chapter with Jesus casting out an unclean spirit. This section begins at verse 14. Let's have an invocation and prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. So, last week at the end of our session, we had seen the transfiguration, and they come down the mountain, Jesus charges them to tell no one, and there's this matter of Elijah. We went and looked in Malachi at that verse and talked about how it relates to John the Baptist. And now we transition to verse 14 and the new material. Chapter 9, Mark nine, fourteen. I'm teaching just enough classes that I, am I confused? No. Am I in the right class? <laughs> Is it the right day? <laughs> yeah, Mark, Mark chapter 9, verse 14. And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. All right, so there is a tumultuous scene. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? So I think you're seeing the picture that there's an argument. The disciples of Jesus are going at it with the scribes. There's a crowd of people gathering around. Jesus comes. His disciples come to him. Um, They're amazed. They're happy to see him. He says, what are you arguing about with them? We know that he was on the mountain with uh, Peter, James, and John. So that's probably the they in verse 14 when they came to the disciples. And the remaining disciples are the nine. Um, as long as it's used narrowly here, it could be used more broadly, disciples in the wide sense. Probably the nine, especially in view of what transpires. So there's an argument with these and the scribes. Jesus asks them, what are you arguing about with them? Them being the scribes. And someone from the crowd answered. So this whole scene's chaotic. I love it. Jesus is like the parent trying to sort out what's going on. There's all this yammering and tattling. So someone from the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down. And he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. And he answered them. So do note the plural. He doesn't just answer the man. 
Yeah, he, uh, the man whose son is afflicted, he addresses them all or answers them all. O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? In the sense of like, how long am I to put up with this and tolerate this? Like, it's burdensome to me, your lack of faith. How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. So Jesus here seems to, I think this is just, I mean, on face value, the case that Jesus assumes that they should be able to cast out this demon, but they can't, or this unclean spirit, but they can't. So that's his frustration. And we're going to see that spelled out, that it's connected with their faith and connected with prayer, specifically here in Mark. Oh, faithless generation. So that's at the root, is their lack of faith. Kind of resonating from our earlier conversation that faith is only as good as what you put it in. (laughs) Bring him to me, verse 20, and they brought the boy to him. And when the Spirit saw him, so the Spirit sees Jesus, immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus, of course, seizes upon what you probably did, the word if. So Jesus said to him, if you can. What do you mean by if? Okay, If you can, all things are possible for one who believes. So again, what you see here in view is faith. And that, that's really the, maybe the theme that's sort of running through this narrative of the unclean spirit and the lack of faith on the part of all the parties involved. The disciples, the man... And Jesus is frustrated with this. And in some sense, I think here it's fun to read Jesus just in that innocent vein that I've suggested before. Like, he's genuinely puzzled and genuinely frustrated. Like, why can you not believe? That's what it would be like to, you know, be sinless. (laughs) Jesus himself is the faithful one, and on account of his being true man, there's nothing wrong with saying that Jesus has faith. He entrusts himself to his Father. That is uh, his last word on the cross. Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. So nothing at all with with seeing um, Jesus himself here in view as the faithful one. And indeed, maybe even referring to himself among the others when he says all things are possible for the one who believes. He's a true human being. He has faith. All things are possible for him. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. Glorious, beautiful statement. So yeah, throughout this whole section, it's really been a meditation on faith, the response to Jesus. And here's such a wonderful confession. I believe, help my unbelief unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd was running together, 
he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it. So what exactly is meant here by the crowd running together? It seems as though like now attention has been drawn on a massive scale. What was sort of small, now the crowd's caught up with Jesus, or they've caught wind that he's here, or maybe that's even been punctuated by the drama at hand, and a large crowd is gathering. And Jesus, as we've seen throughout Mark's gospel, isn't interested in making a spectacle of himself. So I think that that's the sense of what Mark is relating to us here in 25, where he says that Jesus saw a crowd running together, coming toward him. So he rebukes the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out, and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said he is dead. And this is a really important part. So not only is he demon-possessed, but then after the demon's exercised, he's dead or as if dead. So, I mean, again, these things are highlighted for us to reflect on the spiritual reality that, like the baptismal liturgy says, we're under the possession and control, I'm paraphrasing it, of the devil. We're in his kingdom and under his influence until God, through his Holy Spirit, sets us free. So, in this sense, antithetical to God, and then once the evil's been removed, just plain old dead. And so both have to be remedied, both the removing of the evil and the raising from the dead. And that is just the language. It's not quite so evident in the English, but it is resurrection language in verse 27 that we find. Aneste is the word. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. He resurrected would be a fine translation. So we see the work of Jesus, and I think what's intriguing here is Jesus is like, well, why can't the disciples do this work? It's their lack of faith. Otherwise, they should be fully capable of doing what I've just done. All right. Yes, ma'am. You often think that this is an epileptic seizure, right? Mm -hmm. And so we see epileptic seizures fairly frequently. Mm -hmm. And are we to assume sometimes that this may be demonic, or are we beyond that? Or how does one address that? Mm. So if you look at the study note, it puts it just really simply and plainly. So maybe that's where I'll start. Yeah, Yeah, well, okay. So maybe I'll start there, vent my own opinion, and then kind of return there. How's that? Um, So, yes, in a sense, epilepsy and other similar phenomenon that we experience are a result of the fall, are a result of sort of general demonic influence and the chaos uh, of the powers of darkness that they would like to inflict. I mean, like Luther says in the large catechism, that if the devil had his way, we wouldn't have so much of a morsel of bread. We wouldn't have a moment of sanity or peace. If he had his will, he'd torture and torment us nonstop and, you know, 
have the whole world in flames if he could. So it's by the grace of God that any good exists at all and that we're spared in any way, shape, or form whatsoever. So we can talk about that in a general sense of epilepsy and other similar things as sort of being afflictions wrought by the fall into sin and wrought by the principalities and powers of darkness who desire these things for us. We can simultaneously, and here's where it doesn't matter if it's God or the devil, because even if it's the devil and and or demons, God's permitting it. And so these things are afflictions laid upon us by our Heavenly Father for the good of those who love him, including us, including those around us. So just doing kind of a real general treatment right now. All right. And then we can narrow down to specifically specific bodily possession. And you can tell that this is a specific bodily possession uh, because, so here would be a tell. Let me find the verse. Yes, 20, verse 20. And they brought the boy to him, and when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. What's the trigger? There's an obvious and manifest trigger in this case, face-to-face with Jesus. That is, that is a shorthand way of understanding a way to distinguish between epilepsy as some sort of condition of the fallen state and a demonic possession which has the symptoms of epilepsy. So when, do, when does the epileptic phenomenon happen? Randomly? That's a pretty good indication. Um, if provoked if provoked by Christ or the presence of Christ or the name of Christ or the attempt to cast it out, now we're dealing with something that starts to reveal itself as conscious and malevolent. So there is a distinction that can be wrought. And in some cases where a possession is, is um, suspected, that's exactly the process that the pastor and or other pastors and or um, ecclesiastical supervisors will engage in to find out if we're dealing with a real possession or not. Yeah, and then exorcism would be the treatment as opposed to, boy, you've got an undiagnosed, this looks like epilepsy to me, or, or the doctor has diagnosed that this is epilepsy. As far as we can tell, that's what it is. So there's not going to be an exorcism, right? Uh, so generally speaking, you can tell because the symptoms don't occur only randomly, but occur in specific times and specific ways and can um, be influenced by the presence of Christ or words of, about Christ. Make sense? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and there's another, there's another key in this text that shows that what's going on isn't just normal. So, like normal epilepsy which I think these people were smart enough to figure out, too. So even though they might not have had the word or the scientific diagnosis, I think they knew the difference between this is a demon and this is a sickness. So a, a cue in... Bingo, that's the one. Yeah. Like, they're noticing that there's something like, okay, why doesn't the disease you know, seem to happen at innocent times? Why does it seem like, oh, there's fire, 
wouldn't it be convenient for him to have the seizure now and go into the fire, right? And this has happened since he was, uh, I think he's called a boy, but this has happened like since his birth or something like that. So it's enough, that, yeah, from childhood. So I don't know, who knows how long. It's enough that the father and the others around, I mean, this is a tight-knit community, have detected a pattern, and the pattern is this is more than a disease. This is a spirit. Yeah. Because they do have the language of disease and the understanding of diseases. That's why they're going to Jesus broadly to be healed of their diseases. And not every disease do they say, oh, it's a demon causing you know, this lameness or it's a demon causing this blindness, right? So you can detect even from the text itself that the first century people have an understanding of disease and understanding that based on their observations of the circumstances, this is an unclean spirit at work. Okay, does that help somewhat? Okay, perfect. Perfect. Yeah, please. Yeah, he makes the comment, um, that thing of, oh, faithless generation, but they have gone out and proclaimed the gospel. They came back to him, and they said, everything's available to us. The demons left. They did. So they've done this before, mm-hmm. and they've come back. And then that's when Jesus says, hey, your thing is in the book of life. But so why here now it says, oh, faithless generation, it seems like, hey, they've already done it. So why the difference back then and now? Parable. Okay, if, if I'm understanding you correct, I'll give an answer. And, and if I'm way off the mark, just try to get it through my thick skull one more time, okay? So in this section, and it's a, it's a relatively long and protracted section, one of the major, if not the major, undercurrent is this question of faith. Who has it? Why don't the disciples seem to have it? And you get that in a number of instances. For example, earlier, like in, even in back in... Chapter 7, with the Syrophoenician woman, you have this Gentile exhibiting faith far greater than that of the disciples. And then likewise, uh, where is it? It's somewhere, oh, the man at Bethsaida. Bethsaida, again, if I'm not mistaken, I'm just sorry, I'm just doing this off the top of my head. Gentile territory and the man who is blind is healed and sees. So... And that is right on the heels of, do you remember with the leaven and the bread and, and the, the leaven and the Pharisees and Herod and that whole question of the feeding of the 5,000 and the 4,000, how the disciples like still don't get it? And Jesus is like, how can this be? So there is this continuous meditation on the lack of faith amongst the disciples and the Jewish people where Jesus surprisingly to us and to, our, to probably the first century hearers, finds it amongst the Gentiles. I mean, now that's a historical fact of the ministry of Jesus itself, but it's also being recorded in the first century for rhetorical purpose. And that is to show the Hebrew people who have become Christian that the Gentiles have a place in their midst too. They did from the very beginning and foundation of Jesus' ministry, and they do now these decades later when Mark is writing these things down, recalling them to mind, showing that, hey, the Gentiles had faith even from the start, and in some ways, and in some instances, a superior faith. So they're not second-class Christians. And of course, Paul has to deal with this in a number of ways explicitly and specifically. So does that, I mean, hopefully that, that, 
helps color this text that Jesus is once again finding them and finding people who should have faith having insufficient faith. Yeah, so it's, it's, it's a broad spectrum. It's not just that the disciples, because the disciples had faith because they had gone out on a little missionary journey before and they had the demons casted out when they first went out. Yeah, yes. well, and see this, and that might add to what's puzzling them because we haven't got to the end of this specific per- pericope because they're going to turn and ask Jesus, hey, why couldn't we cast this one out? Yes, because they, they already did it before. The assumption they, being that they've cast out other demons and this yes. one didn't go out. Yes. Yeah, so then that's going to give us opportunity to reflect on these two things together, faith and prayer, both of which rely upon another, as opposed to relying upon... Now, I don't want to overread the text... But the emphasis here is sort of like, hey, why couldn't we do this? Yeah, why couldn't you do this? Why couldn't your disciples do this? That kind of thing. And then even doubting if Jesus himself can do this. And so faith as being only as valuable as what you have faith in. And likewise, prayer, the essence of prayer being like, I can't do this. This isn't within my own power. Thus, I have to request So the idea that this comes from God and is done by God shows the interrelationship between faith and prayer. Now, I think that that's what's actually going on here in this specific case. But we could say more about that, too, and maybe I will in a minute. Okay, so if if we read on then, right after he's dead, or appears to be dead to most of the people there, Jesus takes him, lifts him up, he arose... When they had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. And there's a number of fascinating and enigmatic things about that statement. In the first place, did Jesus himself pray? Well, it's not recorded. I mean, in general, he prayed. Okay, but did he pray here before the exorcism? No. So what, what would that infer or imply? That he's God. <laughs> so in a sense, you have this reflection on the humanity of Christ that, um, for example, where he says, uh, all things are possible for one who believes. But here you have a reflection, I think, on the divinity of Christ, or at least we're led to ponder that by the way Mark constructs it, because he doesn't specifically say, Father, cast out this demon, he just does it. But what is, what is his disciples' question? How come we couldn't? And then he says, because you didn't pray. That is, you didn't ask me or my father to do it. You, there's a, so there's a little bit of self-reliance kind of colored in here that's being rebuked. But I think even more broadly, and this is a point I'd like to press upon because um, we have a tendency to, I mean, I have a tendency to do this too, but in the West, we just generally have a tendency to uh, act as though all of the evil forces are monolithic and uniform, and it's just kind of like the devil and maybe like 15 other bad guys who look just like him running around the world. And what you get here is actually a taste of the diversity of of the kind of demons, and a sense also for the hierarchy. They, they, they differ in terms of power, ability, nature, etc. 
Jesus, for example, flat out calls this spirit, you mute and deaf spirit. So that talks, I mean, that, that hints at and alludes to, not in any definitive sense, of the nature of this particular unclean spirit and what he's able to do or what he specializes or maybe even what he himself is unable to do, his own nature. And so as he infects a host, the host uh, becomes subject to that nature. Okay, well, be that as it may, all I'm really trying, I'm not trying to put down anything dogmatic or tight here. What I'm trying to do is suggest to you that the text itself here shows a, a kind of diversity of a demonic being here that we need to re, just in a general sense, we need to sort of re-bring into our perception. So there are demons that perhaps can be come out if you just say, in the name of Jesus, be gone. But not this one. So I don't think Jesus is doing some, you know, some fast and loose kind of rug pull when he says, um, oh yeah, well, prayer. He specifically says this kind, this genos or genus, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. So here indicated then, even in our Lord's words, that there are different kinds of demons. And if we're going to be about the business of casting them out, it's not always the same formula or the same thing that's going to work. The other Gospels also um, record fasting and prayer as the two things required, um, which are very much in the ancient mind synonymous. Fasting and prayer go hand in hand. And both of which are an emptying out of the self and a... When you fast... You're weakening yourself. You're diminishing yourself. And that's an essential aspect of prayer and an essential aspect of faith. And particularly in this case, it's illustrated that if you're going to cast out this genos of unclean spirit, you're not going to succeed if you go head-to-head on your own strength. So by emptying oneself out, fasting, prayer is the same thing, recognizing that this is not within your capability of doing, and entrusting yourself to the one who can do all things, that's the way in which he, through you, will cast out this unclean spirit. So there's much to gain here, much to glean, especially in the way of general worldview. Um, Not all demons are the same, Um, They have different natures, they have different effects, their possessions are different, and the ways of getting rid of them are different. And I think all of that's really good for us to take in, because if, I think one of the things that kind of happens to us, we think of angels, and maybe you think of like, you know, some kind of shiny being with wings, and they all look like identical copies of each other, and you kind of think of like unclean spirits, maybe black shadowy figures with sharp teeth or something, and they all look the same, and you know, we, we have this way of just everything becomes cartoonish and everything becomes monolithic and everything becomes boring and simple. And that's not what the scriptures show us the spiritual world really is. Make sense? I'm probably preaching to the choir here. Probably already get yeah, this. The other thing is, it says by prayer. And so is, since it reminds me of Acts where it says, hey, you know, Peter is telling them we're not to wait on tables. We're supposed to be in prayer and in the word. So is this also addressing them too that, hey, this is your job, so you're supposed to be in prayer for this too as well? 
Yeah, in part, sure. I, I think so. I think so. The sense, I, the sense that in that vein, from that angle, Jesus expects that they'll be able to do this. They're not able to do it. He criticizes them for their faith. When they come back to him and say, yeah, but we've cast out other ones. I mean, maybe the presupposition is even with our weak faith. And then he says specifically, this kind only comes out with prayer. Um, that, and that may, I mean, I'm, just, I'm not afraid of saying that may be a hierarchical thing. It may be that some, some demons are subject to them um, and others are not. And it requires specific petition to God for that authority to be, uh, that they possess to be revoked. I'm, I'm not opposed to that way of thinking at all. What you find in St. Paul and others is there's, uh, even though we don't have the specifics given to us in the canonical scriptures, we have a, a, a sense of an elaborate hierarchy and a hierarchy that has to be respected and a hierarchy with certain boundaries and borders that God himself has set, various jurisdictions. And that may well be what we're running up against here. Like this guy, sorry, this guy's in managerial status, okay? And if you want to get rid of him, you're going to have to go to his, you're going to have to escalate to his supervisor. You're going to have to be the ultimate Karen and go right to the Lord. I'm joking, Ron. I hope you don't bring me up on charges for that. Okay. Like so much of Mark, we're left with maybe many more questions than we have answers. And that's really the point. Mark doesn't want to portray Jesus as something where you get to know everything and you get to wrap your head around him and then he gets to become familiar and he gets to become boring. That's not Mark's Jesus. Mark's Jesus is enigmatic and wonderful and you get little pieces and hints, but you never get the whole thing. And even through that is a revelation of him that is just wonderful. So with your permission, then, move on to the next uh, verse, verse 30. Sound all right? Okay. They went on from there and passed through Galilee. And he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. So, if memory serves, this is the second time in which Jesus has uh, predicted his death. And here, I think, obviously, the text makes some connection between his silence or his not wanting anyone to know about his mighty deeds or his acts. You know, the crowd is running, gathering and running to him, so he quickly exercises the demon and moves on. Various other times in which he's told people to be silent or not speak of the transfiguration until after his resurrection, etc. So this whole secrecy motif, quote-unquote, of Jesus. Here we, we see a connection, although that connection itself is somewhat enigmatic, a connection with his death. So he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. Okay, and then in 32, so here's, I mean, here's specifically to his, three days later he will rise. So any speculation that Jesus was despairing on the cross or sinning on the cross is precluded by the fact that even at this stage, he knows that he's going to the cross to 
die and be raised three days later. All right, 32, but they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. So mystery, enigma, fear. Those are, these are frequently things going on and not understanding him, not understanding what he's, why he does what he does or why he says what he says or what he means by what he says. This theme kind of continues. Now, they should know, but they don't know. All right, verse 33, and they came to Capernaum. And when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? Uh-oh. But they kept silent, for on the way, they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve. And he said to them, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And of course, it's Wonderful, because Jesus is, in a selfless way, talking about himself as the first who becomes last and as the greatest who becomes least and as the master who becomes the slave of all. This is ultimately who Jesus is. And it's ultimately why none of us can be the greatest. Are you going to be able to outserve Jesus or <laughs> out-humble yourself? Certainly not. So, Or out-humble him, I mean, certainly not. So... To be a, and, and a, yeah, and we should like desanitize the language here too, because it's not servant, it's slave. Jesus is just not embarrassed by that the way we are. If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and slave of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them, and taking him in his arms, isn't that a beautiful picture? He said to them, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. So we know that the disciples have not wanted to receive the little children, even when they were being brought in their mother's arms to Jesus, because Jesus is important and children are a waste of time. And, you know... They're squirrely and filled with nonsense. When they're babies, they don't do anything other than just kind of eat and sleep and cry, you know, wiggle around a little bit. So in the disciples' eyes, this is, you know, the, these, these children are little and lowly and of no account, and so they fit for Jesus uh, to again teach them about humility. Now, he does so in a way that I think is maybe... I don't think I'm pressing this too far, but you can push back if you think I am. Look at what he actually says. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. So who does Jesus associate himself with? The child. The child who's being received. So, in other words, Jesus puts himself in this low position As you receive others who are in low position, you receive him. He's already putting himself in the low position. It's kind of like this idea of, like Luther has in one or two of his Christmas sermons, where he says, if you're looking for God, stop looking up. He's not in the sky, or at least not in the sky in any detectable way to you. Look down into the manger, 
or look down into the sacraments. Luther has this beautiful statement where he says that the the scriptures are the swaddling cloths of Jesus. So if you would visit Jesus, visit the scriptures. If you would hold Jesus, hold on to the scriptures. Yeah, and it's Augustine has this other great statement. What is it in his Advent sermons? He does something similar, but with the Eucharist. Mm, I don't know if I'll be able to conjure it up right this second. But he, he talks about... Um, oh, yeah, 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 that's what it is. So Luther will also talk about, you know, when you hear the word you're receiving. So he'll talk about this like Mary as the icon of the church. And as... You know, as we consider ourselves as church, she's um, impregnated by the word of God and the word is within her. And so we want to likewise um, be spiritually impregnated with Christ and have his word come and have the word of Christ himself dwell in us and have his life be one with our life. And then Augustine talks about um, finding, because the shepherds are told to go find Jesus lying in a manger um, and so Augustine says that manger is the sacrament. If you, would, if you, like the shepherds, would go and find Jesus where he lies, he's lying in the sacrament. So, and that, because that's where he locates himself. So just this beautiful idea of how we're w- woven into the tapestry and reality of the scriptures and how you know, this idea of like, well, I can't wait to meet Jesus for the first time when I die that might be the most blind and deaf thing you could conceive of. Jesus has met you, and you've met Jesus countless times. You may not have seen him with your eyes, but blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. You've nonetheless encountered him um, in all those ways that I just pointed out from Luther and Augustine. Uh, If you would go see Jesus, he makes himself available to you in his word, and his sacraments. So, anyway, sorry for that tangent. Well, actually, I'm not sorry for that tangent. I do it again. Jesus locates himself in the lowly child, even as he locates himself in the lowly scriptures, the lowly water, the lowly bread and wine. It's, it's not look up, it's look down, if you would find God. And so, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, And whoever receives me, receives not me, but him who sent me. So there's this beautiful uh, interweaving of the transcendent majesty of the Father with the lowliness of a child and a slave and Jesus. And it's where where the Alpha and the Omega can be understood too, like the, the least to the greatest, the most mundane to the most transcendent. God is a God of everything and a God of that wonderful diversity from one end to the other. You know, human beings are kind of middling creatures. We can get so high and so low. (laughs) Our swath is always, our perceptual swath is always like this, you know. And God's is just embraces the fullness. So that's, it's just such a beautiful vocational comfort too because it's no less the divine work of God. You know, you think, oh, wouldn't it be something to be a preacher and, you know, preaching God's word and ministering the sacraments? And it is, it's wonderful, it's great. But it's in, in this sense, it's no less God's work than when you're at home cooking a meal for your family or sweeping up the floor, because God is the God of the whole spectrum, of the, all the way to the lowest, to the highest, the transcendent, the mundane. 
Um, he embraces it all. Anyway, I'm sorry, you're trying to get a... So, uh, seeing Christ in, in the little children, uh, is that, can we also connect that with the verses where Jesus says, I was in prison and you didn't visit me, and I was thirsty and you didn't give yeah, me... Yeah, absolutely. So, in all these places, Christ is pointing out where he is visible and we can be with him or approach him, or, mm-hmm. but the divine service, of course, is the ultimate, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You're reminding me of Chrysostom. Chrysostom, in his sermon, he was always, he lived in a place where the, many of the Christians were wealthy, and um, there was, a, or maybe, a, yeah, maybe I should put it this way, that within the church, there was great disparity of wealth. There was no middle class. They're kind of the dirt poor, and they're really wealthy. And one of his favorite things to do, which is why everybody, one of the reasons why everybody likes Chrysostom, because who on earth would do this, is he would always be prodding the rich. And he would always, you know, you'd think that, hey, they're the benefactors. They're the ones paying his salary. They're the ones keeping the candles burning in the church. But he would go after them in his sermons, and he would say um, frequently things to the effect of, if you would see Christ, he's sitting in rags right behind you. So locating Christ in the lowly, whether it's the little children or it's the poor or it's the hungry, with a specific view to our brothers in Christ, because that's the coloring of Matthew 25. Whatever you did to the least of these, my brethren, is specifically Jesus is talking about his saints, his family. And so amongst the family of God, we want especially not to despise the poor and lowly. Christ locates himself there. I need to reread this verse next time I'm on the eve of vacation Bible school. This would help me. <laughs> I can picture myself sitting on the chancel steps waiting for the little children to come in. I can think, okay, here comes the Lord. That would be great. He locates himself. <laughs> In the little children, so whoever receives one such child as my name receives me. And of course, then transcendently to do that is to receive the Father. It's just wonderful. It's just glorious. Okay, shall we, uh, shall we move on? Ooh, thank you. Yes, please. Yeah, one second. We need your words to be immortalized on the World Wide Web. No pressure. So when you were saying that about the children, it's crazy to think that that's what the devil does too. Because we just read about the demon coming into the child mm-hmm. for his whole life. Interesting. So that's, I don't know how you relate those. Yeah, I don't know. It's an interesting observation that you have the child, and here Jesus reflects on the child, and in the one case, evil has entered the child, and here Jesus is associating himself with the child, with the lowly. I, I think they're maybe at best sort of loosely connected, because um, we, do, we do pivot to them talking about who's the greatest, and Jesus mentions specifically being last of all, servant of all, and then he even connects himself then with receiving this child. So what exactly does he say? He takes the child. It's small enough. He takes him up in his arms, said, whoever receives a child in my name receives me. Mm-hmm. So 
You know, when, you, when the disciples are thinking of greatness, they're not thinking about receiving children in the name of Jesus. Who knows what they're thinking, but probably something like, you know, important positions in Jerusalem and uh, making sure that other people, you know, important people come and have audience with them and take their commands or, you know, being super important people in the, in the, he- the new heavens and the new earth. I don't know what they're thinking, but something along those lines. So, yeah, please. I'm going to say, often I think I don't have much contact with the poor and the lonely and the down and out, but when I think of lowly, I think any one of us can be low at different times depending on what's going on in our life, and if we're in tune to notice those things, people don't have to be down and out and poor, but they can use a lot of support in other ways. Yeah, absolutely, it happens, and I'm I'm not... um, and I don't mean to chide anyone um, unnecessarily, but we tend, when we go to meals, even at church, to sit with the people we know and to sit where we're comfortable. And to some degree, that's okay because, you know, we have to be cared for by the body of Christ too. But if you have an eye for it and you look, you'll see people sit alone or you'll see people sit and nobody but the kids will come sit around them or something like that. Those are very concrete examples of who we want to have our eye out for, so that when you're, you know, next time you're at the soup supper or whatever, and you think, you know, I'm good, I'm okay, I'm not needing the consolation of the brethren right this second, I have a little I can dish out myself, take pause and see who's sitting on a corner of a table far off in the distance, and go sit down next to them. And, you know, so I think, I think we do have opportunities for that kind of thing, even though, I, I mean, I certainly sympathize with what you're saying. Here in Orange County, it's like we don't have a lot of people in our congregation who are destitute. But we do have, like any gathering of people, those who are further out on the outside and those who could use an arm around them and a welcome in. and Yeah, that kind of thing. So maybe that's what we have in view. Okay, was there another hand? Was there another... All right, very good. So let's, yeah, this whole least greatest thing. And then verse 38, John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name. Which is kind of hilarious. I don't know if it's intentionally hilarious. But they just like failed at doing this. And now they see this other guy succeeding at doing this. <laughs> I don't know, maybe it's a little sour grapes. It's a little jealousy and irritation. <laughs> Going to get this guy in trouble. Going to knock it off. He's, he's too good at basketball, he's, but he's violating the rules. He shouldn't be playing. <laughs> Makes us look bad. Who knows? Who knows what's going on? Uh, so, teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name. And we tried to stop him because he was not following us. Now, I think that this is an important language if you kind of... So remember how in the previous section with the casting out of the demon, it's like they didn't pray. They didn't ask God to do it. Well, what's the inference? They thought they could do it. So, and then what's this business about the greatest? Well, I'm going to be the greatest. So this section is also kind of like the... It's all about me section. That, do you remember that contemporary Christian worship song? 
It's all about me. It's all about, with the keyboard. It's great. Uh, <laughs> that's what this section is. So look at, look at the language. We tried to stop him because he was not following So I think this is kind of a collection of texts, too, that show that the, you know, there's almost this binary thing. It's going to be Jesus or you. It's going to be about him or about you. It's going to be your reliance on him, or it's going to be you kind of making a fool of yourself, thinking it's about you. And I think that's probably the way in which this, this text is colored and arranged, because he was not following us. I mean, Jesus is certainly included in the us, but that itself has a problematic element to it. 39, but Jesus said, do not stop him. For no one who does a mighty work in my name. So second reference to the name of Christ. No one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Boy, he has packed a lot into a few words. In the first place, maybe we should just hone in on that statement, the one who is not against us is for us. I mean, who ultimately is going to be casting out demons. It's not going to be by the power of man. We've already seen that. So it's going to be God. So clearly God is working through this person. And it is interesting too, because it seems to be, we seem to get more detail from Jesus than we do from John. For no one who does a mighty work in my name seems to be that this man is casting out demons in the name of Jesus. That seems to be quite clear from what our Lord himself says, not from what John says. No, no, he does too. I'm sorry, I'm in error. He does too. Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name. We tried to stop him because he's not following us. Jesus said, do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. So it all is done in his name. For the one who is not against us is for us. And then truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup, you plural, a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. So that's just a minimal thing. It's not that there's something magical with cups of water. It's just whoever does the least act of kindness to you because of me will retain his reward. It's kind of a beautiful broad statement on just the nature of serving one another. It's ultimately serving Christ. Even as receiving a child is receiving, his name is receiving Christ. And it's receiving Christ. Obviously, fatigue is kicking in. Okay, so, I don't know. What else do we want to talk about there? Anything else? Yeah, please. Well, I'm just, it's kind of a sarcastic remark, but it, it could be also like, hey, because um, Peter's in with this group, so since he's the first pope, he's saying, hey, there's other churches, right? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. Maybe so. I don't know. It's hilarious anyway. It wins points for being funny. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, there is, there is this sort of thing 
that you see that you, you see that the disciples aren't getting it in a number of ways, and you do kind of I don't know it, it is it is a little bit speculative, but just what it, what exactly is the nature of their conversation where they're talking about who is the greatest and what is this hierarchy among themselves that they envision, and then. If, if that's sort of their worldview, if that's sort of the way they're looking at their ministry of Jesus, you know, they're kind of walking around like, well, I'm going to be viceroy, you know, and this kind of thing. And then, oh, look at that unauthorized peasant casting out, you know, so he's not under our authority. And then it would be sort of a corrective of Jesus being like, yeah, friends, if it's in my name, then obviously he's not against us. He's not against me. And if he's not against us, he's for us. And so recentering things on Christ and the bigger picture of what he's doing in the world. Maybe that's a decent reflection to have. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, there, to just to be blunt with you, there's, there's a... Some things I don't quite understand as deeply in this passage as I would like to, or I think there's more there than I'm able to gather. Because 41, for true, what's the, what's the precise connection? Maybe you know, maybe you can see it. Maybe I'm just fatigued and can't see it. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly, why does that follow? For truly, I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ, that would be like in my name, will by no means lose his reward. Mm. I mean, I can kind of see a connection, but I can't quite see why that logically follows. I just have a thought. Yeah, please. Okay. Carry on. You may take that. I'm just thinking there are a lot of denominations. You know, and not everybody believes as LCMS does on certain facets. Mm -hmm. But that by no means means that these aren't Christians who are believers who are doing their thing Mm -hmm. with their cup of water, maybe differently than we're doing with our cup of water. But it's all in his name, maybe? Yeah, I don't know. I'm kind of, I don't know that that's what's being taught here, even though what you said is perfectly true. Um, I don't know that that we we recognize our Christians in all denominations, and we recognize we can work together on many things. And um, I mean, all that's true. I don't know if that comes from this text. That might be kind of an I don't know, I don't know, just not not convinced. But what you say is true nonetheless. Yes, please. Well, my thought is all the people, all the towns they're going to. They're creating believers. Mm-hmm. So all these believers are taking what they've witnessed and seen and spreading the word, their word, the, mm-hmm. their way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's true. That's true. And they're not all just running behind the disciples, dropping everything and following I think following you're right. Them. I think so, you're right. And that would be the connection with your point. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think you're right. That... That Jesus, in a sense, like, there's almost like this twofold ministry. There's the ministry proper that he's going to work through his apostles, and that's going to result in the scriptures and, you know, the sort of formal path and way. But that's not the only thing he's up to, because everywhere people are, like you said, being converted and spreading the word. You think of the woman at the well, she goes off and, like, evangelizes the whole city. So, yeah, there's this sort of chaos element. 
as well, or this, or this sort of like, I mean, it's not chaos, truly. It's like this wider sense of the ministry of Jesus and this narrower sense of the ministry of Jesus. And he's like, yeah, don't be, don't be worried about this other. It's, it's under my purview as well, right? <laughs> yeah. Okay, I, I appreciate both of those comments. I think that's right. I think that's right. And that does tend to give more sense than 2 to 41, Whoever gives you a cup of cold water because you belong to Christ. Like, so look, they don't have to be inside proper anyone. Like, what's uni- what unites is belonging to Christ and the name of Christ. Maybe that's what's going on here in the original context. Okay, well, we have more to say about little children. The little child in Jesus' arms we have a recurrence of little ones in verse 42, and we'll talk about the millstone and all of that next week. All right, the Lord be with you.